The Srebrenica genocide was the culmination of a four-year war, killing over 100,000 people and displacing more than 2 million. The Bosnian War is still the most destructive conflict in Europe since World War II. It was a war born out of ethnic tensions, incited by the elites, many of whom are now convicted war criminals. People like Rako Mladic and Radama Kralic, they actually saw what they were doing as public good. And it's a very sort of bizarre and if you even want, you know, sick idea to try and package genocide as, as a public good. That's Emes Suligic. You may remember him as the genocide expert and director of the Srebrenica Memorial Center from our first series in which we told the story of Srebrenica, where more than 8,000 Bosnian Muslim lives were lost, most of them men and boys. Today, their families and friends can do little more than to mourn and to try and rebuild something resembling a life. Manira Subasic, who, among dozens other relatives, also lost her son and husband in Srebrenica, describes the toll of the killings on the women left. I often say that this war and other wars were carried out on mothers' shoulders, on their bosoms. We, the mothers of Srebrenica, have carried everything that has been done and what is being done on our motherly backs. From Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica, this is a special episode of Untold Killing, commemorating the anniversary of the Srebrenica genocide. I'm Alexandra Bilic. In this episode, we're going to revisit some of the survivors and experts from the first series and explore what rebuilding life means for them with the effects of the genocide still rippling out to this day. Political implications of trying and prosecuting and successfully convicting so many members of the Bosnian Serbian Serbian leaderships were never taken to their logical conclusion. And whereas we dealt with individual criminal responsibility of the highest echelon of the Bosnian Serb and Serbia proper political and military establishment. The ideology behind it was never dealt with. Although the political ideology behind it has survived and it's very tenacious and it's very dangerous, you know, it's still out there and it's now finding new allies and it's finding allies in the form of Anders Breivik and Brenton Tarrant and all the right-wing violent extremist nuts who find inspiration in the fate of the Bosnian Muslim population in the 90s. The organization that was created to bring resolution to the genocide and the war was the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Here is Professor David Pettigrew, who is a member of Yale University's Genocide Studies program, talking about whether the ICTY managed to live up to its immense responsibility. The ICTY serve an important purpose. It sets forth a chronology, sets forth a history of what happened. But what I, what I found, which was interesting, was that part of the mandate was to contribute to peace and reconciliation in the region. And given the level of genocide denial, Islamophobia, threats of secession, destabilization in general in, in Bosnia and in the region, one could say that the ICTY has not contributed. It's bred a certain level of of cynicism, in part because of uh, what I found were 
very few genocide convictions, very few life sentences. And then the other thing that I found troubling was the short prison sentences and early releases. And so David says that the ICTY struggling to live up to what, according to many, was an overly ambitious mandate, now contributes to a troubling trend in today's Bosnia. So we have a kind of twofold process where memorials to the perpetrators have been installed in symbolically significant places throughout Republika Srpska. So there's a plaque commemorating Ratko Mladic on Vratsa Hill above Sarajevo in the position from which civilians were attacked and, and murdered. The, the statue to the, the so-called defenders of Republika Srpska in downtown Visegrad, in a place where the population was decimated even to a greater extent than in other parts of Bosnia, and the, the atrocities included the burning of women and children and elderly in at least two houses in June of 1992. So you have the proliferation of memorials for the perpetrators and also suppression memorials for the victims. So the situation in Bosnia is extremely complex. In large parts of the country, those Bosnian Serbs who perpetrated war crimes and their sympathizers are still in control. And David suggests that there is a basic lack of interest and understanding from the international community about what happened in Bosnia. That the way the war has been framed ever since the 90s still impacts the situation in the country even today. Here he is talking to my producer, Jake Atayevic. I found something in, uh, I think it was in November 18 in the New York Times, where they referred to what happened in Bosnia as tribal fighting. And this was just a couple of years ago? Yes. I claim in my article that this thinking in the international community affected the International Criminal Tribunal, for example. They were more cautious, less assertive, less uh, interested in the truth. Look at the Karadich case. At one point, there was an agreement made to eliminate eight or nine municipalities from the case and what they called the uh, interest of justice to expedite the case. One of the municipalities removed was Visegrad, where I alluded to the horrendous scale of the atrocities. So I'm wondering if this conceptual framing as a civil war, as ethnic cleansing, has consequences for how the ICTY operates. And those consequences are very real. Srebrenica is the only legally recognized act of genocide from the war by the ICTY. Many of the perpetrators are still or already free. The prison sentences seem insufficient to a lot of people, considering the scale of the crimes they are meant to punish. And the international community lack an understanding of what happened in Bosnia. All of those things combined pave the way for those who claim that the genocide never even took place. It's a subject that I've thought about because from going back to that first day at the graveside, one of the questions in my mind was how on earth could anyone possibly deny what happened? That's Robert McNeil. He was one of the many international forensic experts investigating the Srebrenica genocide. I believe that one way of dealing with denial is to ask the important question as to why are you denying it? And my understanding is that people who are denying may themselves have suffered or their families have suffered terrible ordeals, whether they be Serb, Croat or whoever. Many of these people suffered and or they will say that, well, they did the same to us or they did worse than us or it was nothing to do with me, I wasn't there and so many reasons brought forward. But nevertheless, what I would try to say to those people is that, yes, 
you may well have your own story, and that story is extremely important. But you'll never be able to resolve this through denial. I think acceptance has to be uh, absolutely vital on all sides. If we reckon with our past, and if we learn something from the past, then we will have a better and happier future. But we cannot have it unless we accept the truth. When we accept the truth, and it passes through us, we will be free of hatred and negativity. But that, it seems, is still very far away. The ideology that caused the war and the suffering still runs strong even in neighbouring Serbia. I want to talk about Serbia because the young ones from Belgrade are very sick. They are very sick because I often had the misfortune to be called a Turk when I visit. There she is. She came from Srebrenica to Bark. I was called with derogatory names and it's all so sad because they were probably not even born during the war. Their parents raised them like that because the perpetrators have not been punished, but rewarded. The survivors are uprooted. The lives they led before the war, the places they called home, are all gone now. Kada Hotic had lived in Srebrenica since she was a young woman, but today she can't imagine herself living there ever again. When I go back to Srebrenica, new people are living there. There aren't the same people that were there before. They look at me differently. They don't greet me on the street and invite me for a coffee. Srebrenica has been stolen. It's no longer mine, and nothing is mine anymore. Things will never be the same again. They killed my harmonious life. The valley where the factories were before the war, which was beaming with life, is now a valley of death. But when I spoke to Nejad Avdic, who survived a mass execution that July in 1995, and actually chose to go back to Srebrenica, he explained that he simply couldn't see himself going anywhere else. I could never imagine that I uh, will live here forever, and that I will... Uh, stay here for so long as I did. I just wanted to, to, to come here to show something, but I don't know what. Maybe that I survived and that, that I'm still alive. Though they wanted to, to kill me. And I have to say that I have never regretted that I have chose to return here. At the same time, I could never Imagine myself to go somewhere and to live peacefully, maybe abroad in the United States or Australia or somewhere else. You know, you uh, lost so much here and uh, to go somewhere and to live peacefully with such huge loss, probably I could not survive. And... Uh, Coming here and uh, living here and fighting here maybe uh, helped me to heal and uh, it is maybe it is therapy for me. If you lose so much and uh, if they kill 
everybody of your relatives, your father, your uncles, and you go somewhere to live peacefully. Where is the sense to go somewhere and say nothing about that? There are many others who, like Nejad, have also chosen to return. Hassan Hasanovic is a survivor who today works at the Srebrenica Memorial Center, in the same place where the UN base was located back then. Who could even assume that I would come back there to work for the memorial, to tell the story to hundreds of thousands of visitors who come from all over the world. And um, I wanted to do it for my father, for my twin brother, for my uncle, and for all of those who were killed. You know, we have to be their voices. And um, at the big, very beginning, it was very difficult to tell the story because I felt like I wouldn't survive some of those testimonies in front of groups of visitors. And as time was passing, I felt that it was better. And I realized that it was also helping me to release what I felt inside. Everyone I've spoken to talked about the importance of keeping the story of Srebrenica alive, whether it's at home to fight for the truth or around the world to show people how deceptively easily something like this could happen again. I feel there's such a lot of work to do to remind people or to to, uh, inform people about what happened in this country, which is two hours away by plane, and that, you know, don't be complacent, uh, what happened there in a very civilised European country could happen anywhere. It's a big task to get people to care. The story is hard to hear, and it's even harder to admit that perhaps we're not so different from the people in it, that the same thing could happen to us. I really think uh, that uh, telling the story really makes sense and it's trying to change people. And this is what we are all trying to do when doing these things, trying to change people's hearts uh, for them to become better human beings. But the thing is that the story of Srebrenica is just one of many that need to be told. And as I said before, it was the culmination of four years of violence and hatred. But back in 92, when it all began, the world first started paying attention to the war because of a different story. In August of that year, British journalists Ed Vulliami and Penny Marshall uncovered the existence of several concentration camps operated by the Bosnian Serbs. Thousands upon thousands of Bosnian Muslims and Croats were imprisoned, raped and tortured there many of them killed. We will tell the story of those camps, the survivors and the journalists in the second series of Untold Killing. We're working on it right now and it's coming soon. To find out when exactly, keep an eye on this feed. Untold Killing is a co-production from Message Heard and Remembering Srebrenica. This episode was produced by Jake Itayevich and executive produced by Sandra Ferrari. Our theme music is by Matt Huxley. The voices of Manira Subashic and Kada Hotic were Sean Damon and Kim Sadiq. If you'd like to find out more about Remembering Srebrenica's commemoration activities, go to www.srebrenica.org.uk. My name is Alexandra Bilic. Thank you for listening. <laughs>